Well, everyone, welcome. Uh, we're going to continue our study through the Epistle of James, and we're now in Chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1 is where we're at. And just for time's sake, I'm not going to review much of um, what we did last week, but for those who were here, we saw that what James has been doing is he's been speaking to several issues that exist in these churches that are scattered abroad. James has been writing these, this letter to several churches that he describes as the churches that are scattered abroad. And he's been addressing several different kinds of issues in these churches and a lot of the sins that are happening in these churches. But here now in verse 5, we're going to see a transition. Now it seems like he's transitioning not to speak to those in the church, but is actually speaking to the sins of some of those who are outside of the church. And these sins that are occurring outside of the church are actually spilling over and affecting um, those Christians in the church. The sins of these people are affecting those in the church. And so I'm not going to do a review, but I just wanted to do a, um, almost like a pretext clarification. Um, and, I, and I'm going to do that, but Josh, if we can have your services, can you read the text for us? I'm pulling it up right now. you pulling it up right now? Yeah. Um, when you find it, read for us um, the first six verses. Five, one through six. Yeah, James five, one through six. Thank you. You can't translate it quickly from your No, I'm rusty on the Greek text, man. James five, one through six. Yes, sir. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasures. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death a righteous man. He does not resist you. Amen. All right, very good. Thank you. Okay, so before we, before we really dive into the text here, I, yeah, I wanted to make a clarification on what this text is not teaching. Right, because we see right there in verse 1, it says that James is addressing the rich. Mm-hmm. He's addressing the rich without a real qualification right there at the beginning. But the reason I wanted Josh to read all that is so that we could see specifically what type of rich people that he is speaking to. Mm. And so we see that these are the rich who obviously misuse their riches. Mm-hmm. These are the riches who have gained their money through deception and even murder of the righteous. Now, I think it seems pretty obvious for several reasons that these rich here that James is addressing are, as I said before, not Christian rich people, but people outside of the church who are rich. Um, but there are, there are, of course, rich Christians. And as I said, like James isn't saying that to be rich in general is necessarily a sin. Because if you flip over just a couple pages, um, back to James chapter 1, we saw him 
even reference the rich, who would be when he was speaking to the churches in James chapter 1, verse 10. Because there he says, the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. So James was speaking of the, the differences of how you're to glorify God, whether you're poor or rich. Right? So the, so the rich Christians are there in the church, and James has already addressed them. Uh, we see in 1 Timothy, Paul likewise addresses the rich who are in the churches. You know, we, we looked at that text before, and there Paul exhorts the rich to be generous with their money, be generous in good works, and to glorify God with their money. And so the rich are there in the church, and, and, and Paul neither tells the rich to get rid of your riches so that you can be poor. Right? He doesn't tell them anything of the sort. Um, but the people James is speaking here in chapter 5, he's condemning these people in such a way that we can be sure that these are not God's elect. Um, we know this because another, another point to this would be he doesn't refer to them as brethren as he has before in the other texts. In this section, he doesn't refer to them as brethren. And um, he doesn't even offer them any sort of hope or grace, as we looked at in chapter 4, you remember where when James is referring to the brethren, he reminds them of the promise of the Proverbs that if anyone will humble themselves, that God will give them grace. Here he doesn't even offer these people that hope. He's just stating this impending judgment that's coming upon the rich here. And so I don't think that he's addressing Christians, but non-Christians. Um, so that, that was just kind of a, a, a point that I wanted to make. And if a lot more people come in when, when they're in the middle of this text, I might have to reiterate that again just to make sure there's no misunderstanding that James is not in any way saying necessarily that riches in and of itself or money is bad in and of itself. So with that being said, let's, let's get into the text. Um, in this first verse here that Josh read for us, James is stating the coming judgment of the wicked rich here in this passage with the voice of very similar to one of the prophets of old in his language, mm -hmm. where he said, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. And so, yeah, this is very similar language to the prophets of the Old Testament. The prophets, when they condemned not only Israel when Israel was in sin, but also the outside pagan nations around them. Um, I have just one reference here that I'll read. It's from Isaiah. When Isaiah um, condemns wicked Babylon in Isaiah 13, 6, very similar, he says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. And there, Isaiah, in a similar fashion, is basically um, giving the imperative that these wicked should wail. Just like James says, they should weep and howl for the reality of judgment that's coming upon them. That should be their, their reaction, is weeping. Um, so James, just like the prophets of old, is, is unapologetically pronouncing judgment, a judgment to come on these rich. And so this also answers, it, it raises another question that I just wanted to speak to real quickly, um, is this, if, if these are non-Christian people that these six verses are speaking about and speaking to, why, why is this included here in the epistle of James? If these are non-Christians who, as we'll see, these are um, very unsanctified, very worldly, very sinful to the extreme people, these people are probably not going to be sitting in the front row of James' churches. 
They're probably not going to read the epistle of James and see this being said about them. So why is it in the text? Um, I, have, I have several reasons, but I think the primary purpose is that, as we'll see, James includes this condemnation of these rich, wicked people because he's giving comfort to the Christians in the churches. He's comforting them by the fact that, because as I said, these sins of these rich people are affecting those in the church. And God is comforting the Christians that are being affected with the, with the assurance that, that God will deal with sin, that God will deal with the sins that's affecting them, um, that God will uh, justify them on that day and, and make everything right. So God's trying to comfort the church with this. Another thing God would be doing by putting this into the scripture is that God wants us, the church, to, to know his view of sin. He wants us to know how wicked sin really is to him. And so he's going to include this, his view of, of, of the, the sin of greed, he's going to include this in the text so that we can see his view of sin and his view of this sin in particular. Um, Maybe another point just kind of that's very similar is God would be telling us also so that we would have a message for the world. That this message of greed and the sin of greed, we, we have this truth that we can now tell. Now that we know what God thinks about it, we can, we can tell the world God's view of this sin. And of course, yes sir, Josh, you got something? Uh, I just want to ask, um, does this, I, don't, I don't remember what you as far as background, uh-huh. uh, do you think it might have something to do with God's judgment and some poverty or a famine that has come through a certain region at this time, and these people are maybe really aware, like God has done this to them because of how they withheld wages from their workers mm-hmm. or something like that? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's certainly possible, um, but I mean, I don't know of anything in the text that would speak, you know, maybe like a famine or anything like that specifically. Um, I don't know, it, it talks, it's going to talk about how they gathered in all the crops, you know, for these rich people, and the rich people didn't pay them. So I don't know if there's necessarily a famine or something, you know, because they were, they were gathering in plenty, yeah. as we'll see, too much, you know. So I, I, I don't know um, what that background would be. The other um, thing I have a mm-hmm. question yeah. about, do you think this might have something to do with how we should look at some politics and people's uh, positions on uh, wealth in America? Well, I don't know about politically, but I think like this should come home to us personally on how we view, and I think this is another reason, like I said, like another reason he wrote this, so we can have a godly view of riches yeah. and that we're not being like these people. So as we read this whole text of just condemnation, condemnation, we need to make sure that's not our hearts. Um, in, in speaking politically or even issues with the world, compared to the world, compared to the majority of the world, we have a lot of these things that these people, all of us in this room, you know, that have vehicles to drive and houses and food in our pantries and our fridge stocked up where stuff's falling out when you open it. Um, you know, this could come home to us. A lot of people, I think, when James addresses the rich, they think, oh, wow, nice. I can just listen to some condemnation of some evil people. But compared to a lot of the world, this is gonna hit, should hit home to some of us. Um, right, so, so I think I almost gave away my last point there is that James probably wrote this also so that we would not envy the rich, so that we would not envy the position of the rich, these people who have stored up much and have plenty and feel like life life is great and not a care in the world. This condemnation we see here that God gives them um, for, for their greed should not lead us to want to be like that. 
it should keep us from, from this same sin of greed. Um, so, so let's go on. So verse 1, James says that the rich should be weeping and howling due to the fact that their miseries are approaching. Their miseries are approaching, the judgment's coming. As we'll see, that's what this is referring to. But now in verses 2 and 3, what James is going to do, he's going to give the rich some concrete examples of how they have stored up their riches, and he's going to show them the futility of storing up their riches. He's going to point out through some of the things that they've done just how futile this whole lifestyle and this sin is. Let's read verse 2. He says, For your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. And so, what does James mean by saying that the riches have rotted? Well, he could say this because a lot of the riches, especially in that day, didn't just consist of coins and paper, right, and credit cards like we have now. Um, Back then, riches, somebody who was rich, could have had many kinds of goods that could have made them rich. And as we'll see, as, as... uh, James is going to refer to this harvesting that was going to take place of, of food. That could be what is being spoken of here. A lot of perishable goods they had. These are wealthy landowners, have lots of land, people working for them, and they're harvesting in this food. And so this great storage of food that they had would be part of their riches, part of their wealth. And what James says is they've stored up so much of this stuff that it's rotting, It's rotting. They have so much that it's actually going to waste. And James is condemning them there for for this reality. James also condemns them for the fact that he says that their garments have become moth-eaten. And so another sign of wealth, another, another aspect of one's wealth back then especially, and this may be another thing that could even come home to some of us, is that they had such an overabundance of garments, of clothes that weren't even being used or touched or seen that the moths were eating it. And James is condemning them by the reality that they have so much stuff they can't even manage it. Just this overabundance of of wealth. James condemns them with it. In verse 3 he goes on. He says, your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. Consume your flesh like fire, which, which my point was, is, this is actually going to, we're going to see that this is referring to the very specific judgment that's going to come. It's going to, and, and he's condemning them to, to the fires, which we all know is, is normally a reference to the tortures of hell. And so I don't believe that these are Christians, as I said, that he's writing to. But the interesting thing about this verse, I think, is that he says there at the beginning that their gold and silver have rusted which is interesting because um, gold and silver can't rust, or they don't rust, you know, which is just an interesting use of that word there. Um, I I looked that word up in the the Greek lexicon, the Greek dictionary that I have in my house, and it actually gives a much broader definition to this word here for rust. It said it it can, of course, be translated rust. It can mean tarnish or corrode. These things that, that can most certainly happen to gold and silver But James's point is, however their stored up wealth is deteriorating because of storage and time, this this overabundance and this decay of it is going to be a witness, is going to be an evidence that these people have been so greedy and and just have hoarded this wealth that it's actually deteriorating right before their eyes. 
um, that this on Judgment Day, which is what I think that fire is speaking of, this is going to be brought out. You know, when it says the books are open, this is going to be some evidence against these rich people on that day. Um, right, so James adds there at the very end of verse 3, he says, one more, one more point that he makes, he says, it's in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. It's in the last days they've stored up their treasure. Um, so I think this is, this is really getting at this, this fact that these, these folks have been committing this, this sin of hoarding wealth on the earth and storing up for themselves treasures on earth at a time in history that is especially sinful to do such a thing. In the last days is how James designates this time. And, and so what is the last days? What does that mean in the New Testament? Well, it basically became a phrase to speak of the time in history in between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Right? We see that being referred to as the last days in, in a whole lot of texts. I'll just read one that, that really, I think, points out this, this uh, reality. And it's 2 Peter 3.3, 3, where Peter says this. He says, knowing this first of all, that in the last days, there's the phrase, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the father fell asleep, all continues just as it has from the beginning of creation. And so there we see the same phrase, speaking of the last days, in, in this time period where people are going to be mocking the truth, mocking the, the promises of Christ's return, saying, where is the Christ? Everything's been the same since the beginning. Right? So that's what James is talking about in these last days. And so his point with this is that this, Christ has come. I mean, this is a first century church right here. Christ had just come and revealed God, revealed the revelation of God. And so this is a very especially sinful time to be sinning in this way, to be not thinking that Christ is going to come back. He was just there, Right? To bring this home to us, this accountability and stricter judgment that James gives to them would, I think, likewise fall to us. All of us who are on this side of the revelation and the coming of Christ are, are equally accountable to, the, to the, the revelation that God has fully given in the Son. We're fully accountable for, for the revelation of Christ. And not only that, but we also have the scriptures as a testimony as well. We have much knowledge and revelation from God, so... For us, we'll be held also to a higher standard for what we know. We're going to be held to a higher standard as well. And so living in these last days, the days since Christ has come and revealed the Father, the, the days with, as we'll see Christ coming back is imminent, that this is no time to be living worldly. This is no time to be storing up wealth on, on this earth. It's, it's actually incredibly sinful to do that in this time. This isn't a time of ignorance that God's going to overlook these things. Okay, so not only have these rich hoarded up their wealth, but they've also committed other crimes as a result of their greed. It hasn't just led to the storing up, but actually other crimes they've committed. And let's look at verse 4. James tells him, he says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. 
So the Lord has heard the cries of these, these poor people whom the rich have oppressed by not paying them their wages. So there was harvesting going on, and that's how these rich people were storing up all these perishable goods that were eventually um, deteriorating before their eyes. And their condemnation here is that they didn't even pay their workers. Wow. They didn't even pay these, these people who did all of the hard work to make them rich. The workers who mowed and harvested, um, as I said before, I think these are probably some of the people in James's churches that he's speaking to. That's probably who, who these, uh, some of them uh, most assuredly are. And so the prayers that they've been offering up of this injustice that's happening to them, the prayers are reaching the ears of the Lord of armies, the Lord of the armies, the Lord of hosts, which is what that means there, the Lord of Sabaoth. Uh, we may hear it, you know, Martin Luther wrote the song for us. We, you hear that phrase in there. It's not there saying the Lord of Sabbath. It's not like a transliteration of Sabbath. It's, it's, it's meaning the Lord of the armies, the Lord of the armies in heaven. The God of war. The God of, he's a God of war and of justice. And so that's no God that you want to have his people praying against you, right? That, that's, not a good, that's not a good place to be, for to, have, to, have, to be on the Lord of hosts hit list. That's not, a, that's not a place to be, but that's where these people are. And so um, James is simply, simply stating their position, and it's not a good one. In verse 5, he says that they've lived luxuriously on the earth and that they've led a life of wanton pleasure. He says, you fatten your hearts in a day of slaughter. And so this, this life of excess and pleasure um, that, these, that these rich folks have been lead, leading, all the while ignoring the poor, ignoring their own workers, ignoring those in need. This is their sin. Um, the, these rich people just surely think that by feeding their bellies, they're just fulfilling their pleasures, you know, doing what feels right, everything's great. I'm so glad that God has made me rich, maybe. But James says what they're actually doing is fattening their hearts for the day of slaughter. And in the language, it talks very similar that we can all understand. It's just how the, the cows at the farms just eat and eat and eat, just fattening themselves up without a care in the world, living it up. Little do they know all they're doing is preparing for their death, preparing for their slaughter. They're, they're, they're oblivious to the reality of what's actually going on and so, so, too, these people do not realize that they're just storing up wrath for themselves. We'll let Trish go first here. Okay, I was just going to say, um, I had been meditating on Psalm 119, mm-hmm. and um, verse 70 says, their, their heart, speaking of the enemies of God, mm-hmm. their heart is covered with fat. Mm-hmm. But then he goes on to say, but I delight in your law. Wow. And so, you know, there's a difference between the wicked who delight so much in food mm-hmm. that... Yeah, that it's excess, mm-hmm. like you're saying. But the Christians delight in feast. Ultimate feast should be in the Word of God. Yeah, there's the contrast for us, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So yeah, we don't fill ourselves with with food, like Jesus says. You know, we don't live off food alone, off bread alone, but off every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's where our that's where our substance, real substance, comes from. Josh, you have something. I think of the parable of uh, the rich man and Lazarus. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point. Yeah. But I also have a question. Mm-hmm. Uh, how should we look at philanthropy 
and building up the kingdom of God through philanthropy from this text mm -hmm. versus being somebody that is investing and being um, careful with the stewardship they've been given mm -hmm. for their family. And not, I mean, obviously these guys were obtaining wealth through wrong motives mm -hmm. and wrong, like doing their brothers wrong. It almost sounds like in the past tense that they were wealthy. It almost sounds like there's already a judgment beginning now yep. on them with the moth eating their stuff and the rust starting to decay things. Yep. But that would be my thing. It's like, what is what is he saying regarding philanthropy, or is he saying anything? Define that for us. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> is that your Philanthropy. <laughs> I thought everybody knew. Uh, I can't get on Google because I'm recording with my phone. Oh, okay. so I need to know it's like uh, giving out of out of just blessing people mm -hmm. and wanting to like help with charities, help with, mm -hmm. you know, charitable giving, right. basically. Right. And, and then investment. And then, is there any principles that you would say we should be taking away? Yeah, I mean, so I think the main principle is he doesn't give us like a positive case here for right. what we That's should be doing. Saying. All we're seeing is the negative. That's what I'm saying. All we're seeing is the negative. But um, as I said, it might be worth now that more people have showed up. Let, let's read... Um, Turn to 1 Timothy. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Because um, I think there we get the positive case. Uh, let me see here. Where does he speak to the rich? So here at the very end, yeah. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. This is the positive case for the rich on what they should do with their money. It says... Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies all with things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Right, so that even though that's still specifically set, speaking to the rich, um, you know, I, I know that we can, we can, do, we have the ability, we have an abundance, really, at the end of the day, compared to most, yeah. right. um, yeah. all of us. Right. So that's that's the positive case there on how to deal with money. We should be ready to share. Mm -hmm. We should be ready. Um, Maybe have, maybe have some way to have a, a, something on the side that's always available. Maybe cash somewhere, mm -hmm. readily available, just, just for a need. Mm -hmm. You know, just like the church does. We have a set-aside thing for, for helping the, the church specifically, and it's there. Mm -hmm. You know, it's budgeted. Looking for those situations, opportune times yep. to be able to bless others. Yep, look for it, because it's there. I mean, yeah. it's there. The needs are there. Okay, so let, let's go on. Um, in verse 6, uh, we're going to see the fact that, um, as we know, sin has no bounds in the life of the reprobate, right? And these rich people here are going to go as far as to putting some to death. And, and here they're going to be condemned for it um, as well. So let's look, let's look at verse 6. It says, James tells them, speaking of these rich, right, these, these evil rich, he says, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. And in this context, the righteous man, um, as, as I was kind of arguing for earlier, I think would be speaking of these Christians, 
specifically, or even those who, who haven't done anything wrong but have purely tried to work for their living, these rich have condemned them and put to death some of these, some of these poor folks who are their workers. And when it says that the rich condemned them, um, we, we kind of saw that already happening. We saw that already mentioned by James. If you want to flip back again, look at James chapter 2, verse 6, where James kind of already mentioned the fact that this was happening. James chapter 2, verse 6, he says, But you have dishonored the poor man. And then he says, Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? So I think that's the kind of common, con, uh, condemning that he's speaking of here is probably the, the um, judicial system. Somehow these rich were using their wealth and, and their power to probably make up any number of trumped-up charges to, to condemn these rich who may have been, you know, just simply looking for their wages. Um, but they send them to the, the court system to condemn them. And then it says, as if that's not bad enough, he says that they've even put to death the righteous man. They've even gone as far to put to death the righteous man. So there's, there's a couple of ways that you could possibly understand that. Either, as I, as I kind of think here, the condemning probably speaks of the court system. They've put these, these poor who can't afford to fight for themselves through the court system and, and even had them sentenced to death in some cases. Or this putting these poor people to death could just simply be a result of not paying them their wages. Um, these, these daily workers literally needed their payments every day to feed their families. <clears throat> these folks are poor, and they have families, and they would not last long without being paid. They wouldn't last long, especially if there was something, as Josh may have alluded to, maybe if there, if there was any type of hardship as far as famines or something like that, these people would be hopeless. These people would be hopeless in that situation. And so in that way, they could have killed the poor by not paying them. Um, and then lastly, at the end there in the verse, James says that the righteous man does not resist them. And, and, I, and I kind of said, what, what could that, that could mean a couple things as well. Either these poor simply can't even afford to resist them. If they're being taken to prison, I mean taken to, to, to court and they can't afford it. Um, they, you know, basically James condemning the rich for poor, uh, picking on somebody who can't even fight back. You know, um, it's either that or as I would like to think almost, it could be that these poor are actually have the grace um, and the calling to just live out the imperatives that, that Peter gives in First Peter to the slaves. And let me read it here. Peter says, Slaves, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, right? So if these people had the calling and, and the conscience before God that they weren't even going to fight, if they were going to take this persecution, which what it very well could have been, specifically Christian persecution, they just took it for the sake of inheriting a better resurrection or something to that effect. You know, they just took it and, and ended up starving to death and dying. Um, but either way, the, the condemnation to these rich is the fact that these people are living it up right into eternal punishment. Wow. They're living it up right into punishment. Um, so now we have another transition. Um, 
away from James speaking directly about and to these rich, these rich wicked people who are oppressing the poor, um, he's turning now back to the church. He's going from being this, this, the prophet of condemnation and judgment to a, back to a pastor. And we see it um, in the word there in verse 7 that, that he refers to the church there. He says, therefore, be, he says, be patient, brethren, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And so how long were these churches to, to bear under the mistreatment? And how long were they to maintain this patience? James says, until the coming of the Lord. And so reminding these churches of the coming of the Lord, um, this reality that, that these rich should have been aware of as well and should have been storing up their, their wealth on earth, this was to bring comfort and that's what I think this whole passage is really about mainly is to bring comfort to these poor. The Lord is going to return. The Lord is going to vindicate all of their problems. He's going to, he's going to deal out justice to these wicked, these wicked people. And then the, and the best thing of all is that he's just going to bring them in, wiping every tear away into his presence forever. You know, that's, what, that's, the, that's the good news and that's the hope that James is giving them. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the moment that we all long for the return of Christ, but especially those who are under persecution and hardship, how they, how they look forward to it even more. Um, and so quickly here, James is going to give them, he's going to give them an illustration here in verses 7, and the end of verse 7 and 8 of how they're to wait. It says, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. So that James gives him a farming illustration. He says, be like the farmer. The farmer who has to wait for these, these rainy seasons that happen in Palestine. You have one rainy season that happens just after they sow the seed. God brings a rainy season. And the plants start to grow. And right before they mature, there's another rainy season that occurs. And these farmers have to be patient being waiting on the Lord to provide the rains, and they have to wait for their seeds to mature before they can harvest. They can't do it before. You're not going to get a harvest if you, if you um, rain in your crops too early. And so in the same way, these, these folks need to be faithful. They need to be faithful and patient, waiting on the Lord to bring his justice. They're to strengthen their hearts. And he says, for the coming of the Lord is near, now, I'm looking at the clock and looking at this phrase here and not knowing how I'm going to handle this, but how do we understand? How would that early church have understood this phrase that the coming of the Lord is near? Right? Because how do we understand it is what I'm really getting at because it's been 2,000 years since this was written. The coming of the Lord is near. So, so how do we understand that? Um, should, should we... Should we doubt the scriptures and the promises that the Lord is near, like a lot of skeptics would have us believe? Man, Jesus must have been wrong in all these predictions. Man, James was confused, thinking Jesus must have confused him. He thought the Lord, the Lord was going to return soon. Um, I just have an example here of maybe this helps me think about this reality here. And the example that I have is, is the example of Peter. So let me, let me try to explain this really quickly. Peter, in his letters, in the same way, speaks of the near return of Christ, this mm-hmm. imminent return of Christ. He, he actually speaks of it a whole lot. Um, in one of his chapters, almost devoted to this return of Christ and how soon it is. 
Um, but maybe just a couple of verses from Peter. First Peter 4, 7 says this. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. So Peter says, the end of all things is near. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, but the day of the Lord, which is this day that we're speaking of, will come like a thief. It's going to come like a thief. And then he goes on later, a couple of verses later, to say, Therefore, beloved, since you're looking for these things, be diligent to be found in him, in peace, spotless and blameless. And so my point is, how is Peter able to speak like this, of this very near return of Christ, at the same time knowing full well what Jesus Christ himself predicted about Peter and his death? Right? Let me, let me read what, what happened there. What Jesus told Peter specifically himself. This is in John 21, 18. He told him, you'll remember when I read it. He said, Jesus speaking to Peter said, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And then John adds his commentary. Now this he said signifying but what kind of, by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. Okay, so Peter, what I'm trying to say is Peter had this promise from Christ, this prophecy that he would grow old and that he would die, which we think is by, by a crucifixion, right? So in Peter's mind, he was probably fully prepared to live this life of suffering just like Paul had to and be crucified, but at the same time, when he wrote his letters and spoke to the church, he said, the end is near, the end is near, almost like it can happen at any moment. But, of course, Peter would have to live out this prophecy, you know, first. So, for me, you, I see both sides of this reality. This day of the Lord, the parousia, Jesus' second coming, whatever you want to call it, this is to be considered imminent and near, all of these types of, of images, which it is, and I think that it can happen at any moment, I believe, um, and I think we can speak of this because in the grand scope of everything that God has done, in the grand scope of God's redemption, of all of his revelation, all of these things, this is what's left. The return of Christ, the day of the Lord. We're in the last days. This is what's left. Um, so in the scope of things, as compared to everything God's been doing since eternity past, um, the end is near. And Christ could return at any moment. We see in verse 9, he says it like this. He says, the judge is standing right at the door. I mean, Christ is there, probably just waiting for the Father to say, open the door. It's time. That's how near it is. Um, so I quote a lot of P uh, Peter. You know, that you've heard the phrase, a, a, a day is like a thousand years to the Lord. You know, that type of language is right there in the context of Second Peter chapter 3, where he's speaking about the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord. You know, so time is a tricky thing in this type of um, uh, understanding, but we're to understand it, and, and I think these people uh, uh, were expecting Christ to come at any time. And it doesn't make it untrue that when God says the coming is near, if it doesn't happen even in our lifetime, it doesn't mean that it's not true. It's near in the scope of, of God's redemptive plan for sure. Um, so let's end like this. we got maybe just a couple minutes. 
We've covered the issue of, of verse 9 several times already throughout this book. James has spoken of this sin several times. He's going to refer again in verse 9 to the sin of the tongue. And here he's going to speak again about the sin of speaking against a brother, complaining against a brother. And James has addressed it several times. So what I'm going to do here with this verse, I'm just going to read it, and then I'm going to ask a question and see um, how well I've been doing of teaching this, this truth here. But let me read it. He says, verse 9, he says, Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. So here's my question. What are the two reasons that James has already given in this epistle as to why it's so wrong to speak against a brother, or to speak against anyone for that matter? What has been the reasoning that James has used so far? He's given a couple of different reasons, actually, for why it is so sinful and bad to speak against a brother. Is anybody, can anybody remember any of those reasons? We touched on it even last week. Josh is pulling his phone back out. He said something about, a, a, you know, we're made in the image of God. Exactly. That's good. That was one of the first things that we looked at. And I, yeah. I also want to say uh, something about the splinter of the eye. You, you got to splinter your own eye. Maybe like you're talking about judging, judging others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we did. I think you almost touched on both of them right there. First, you got perfectly right, which is that everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone bears the image of God, and so we're not to speak um, wrongly of those made in the image of God. We're not to condemn them in that way and, and judge them like that. Because um, what we're doing is we're indirectly speaking against those whose image we're made in. Right, so we're so we're indirectly condemning God. Yes, ma'am. Um, you said for a, a brother, which I understand, and then you said for anybody. For that yeah. Does that apply to like, say, if it was like a false teacher, right? Like, their their teachings is obviously false mm -hmm. uh, compared to Scripture. Right. Would that be speaking against someone by exposing that, or right? Because I mean, you know, we hear a lot of pastors that expose false false teachers. Sure. Yeah. So, so I, I think it would depend on how you do it, right? Because there's, the, of course, the truth that there's false teachers. And I kind of use the example here that I think would apply is, look how James is, is speaking against these rich people here. He's condemning them to hell. I mean, saying, your judgment's coming. You know, so that's pretty, um, you could say, in a, in a way, he's speaking against them, but not um, in the way that I think he's, he's wanting the church not to, which would be a, a slanderous, um, unnecessary judgment you know, of, of people. You still hope they repent. Yeah, yeah, I still hope that they would repent. Good, um, yeah. Even even for false teachers, you know, I still right. pray that they would repent. Um, but we can say if they don't, they will be judged. Right. You know, um, so, so one reason, Carlos got it, is that everyone, that's why I said everyone can be included. Everyone's made in the image of God. And so we're not to speak against them. Um, yes. I, 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 can I just read this? Scripture as sure. Far as Go ahead, real quick. Uh, Peter says in Second Peter chapter twelve about them uh, about false teachers. Second Peter chapter two verse twelve. Mm -hmm. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. So there is a certain element I think the the scripture does give to a characterization of a false teacher and a false prophet, um, but I think, as again, as James would warn, be careful. 
Mm-hmm. Just judge with the righteous judgment, you know, is how the gospel put it. Yes, ma'am. Maybe I'm totally off, but um, mm-hmm. I think I read somewhere in there where it says, uh, going back to your question, mm-hmm. we shouldn't be judging us, brother, mm-hmm. because you're judging the law. Exactly. You got it. That's right. Okay. That was my second. That's the second reason we should not do it. Because basically, to judge a brother and to speak against a brother is to break one of the commandments, right? To, to love your neighbor. You're breaking that commandment if you're speaking against them. You're sinning against them. You're not loving them as you would want them to love you. Um, and so that's so serious to break God's commandment because what you have to do to break his commandment is you basically have to stand as judge over his commandment and yeah. say that your law is not worthy of being followed. I'm going to go ahead and break it. Yeah. And so therefore you're putting yourself in the place of judge, mm-hmm. which is only God's place. So great. Right there. Good job, guys. I'm very, yes, you know. Well, I'm just reminded of, you know, the tension there between yeah. rebuking a false teacher or even a brother who is an error. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, Jesus did that. So obviously Jesus did not break you did know, not his stand. own word, his own right. commandment. So mm-hmm. obviously yeah. when you rebuke a false teacher or a brother, that's actually loving. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's fulfilling the law of love. Mm-hmm. That's not, you know, you are not uh, breaking this commandment. You're actually fulfilling the higher law. Right. But yeah. you we're out of time. So yeah, we are. I'm sorry. Um, so, so let's we'll wrap it up there. We'll pick up. We'll pick up next time. Yeah, we'll pick up next time right here. But let's go ahead and, and head over. And sorry about keeping everybody over.